It's 4.30 in the morning. I'm on my way to a church in Dallas to witness a divine intervention. In 1.5 miles, turn the church I'm headed to is the First Unitarian Church of Dallas. Nestled in a wealthy neighborhood of the city, it's a pristine, modern set of buildings. It almost looks like a university campus dedicated to religious learning. When I arrive, there are about a dozen other cars there, sitting, idling in the dark parking lot, waiting for everything to begin. After a few moments, I'm ushered inside the building with a group of about 14 other women, by clergy members and volunteers, church ladies who got up extra early to welcome these travelers with warm coffee and baked goods. Good morning. How are you? We walk into a room that looks to be where Sunday school is held. There are notes and posters plastered on the walls that speak about God's love. We've known this is going to happen. For many months, and we've, uh, we've been preparing for it. This is Reverend Dr. Daniel Cantor. He's the senior minister of this church. The 14 women that came here are here because they need help. The clergy members and volunteers are going to help them travel from Texas to New Mexico and back so that they can access safe and legal abortions. I welcome you guys. We've been running this program since the state of Texas made it difficult for people to get abortions. This morning, it's been just 72 hours since the leaked draft Supreme Court opinion to overturn Roe. I know you've probably read the news. The Supreme Court's going to try to make this whole thing go away. We're going to try to keep helping people. It feels surreal to be inside this building as the country learns about how abortion rights could be stripped away. And that's because Roe v. Wade actually got its start at this very church. I'm going to get into that a little bit later, but for now, just know that this moment Sitting in this church, I feel the history, the urgent present, and an uncertain future all at once. They have a plan B and pregnancy tests. I look around and notice that most of the women who come here are Latina or Black. Young, but not teenagers. They're strangers who have no choice but to trust each other and the people helping them make this journey. But this story is about people of faith who care for abortion seekers here in Texas and about the crucial but little-known role that faith and religious coalitions have played in gaining abortion rights in America. Contrary to the narrative that we often hear about religion and abortion, this group of clergy tell me they are doing this work precisely because of their faith. This church has always been a place that has supported people having abortions because we believe that God loves you, that you have dignity and worth, and that there's nothing uh, wrong with having this procedure that you want and need. Reverend Daniel Cantor is tall and slim and wears dark-rimmed glasses. Even though he has a quiet demeanor, he's been an outspoken voice for reproductive freedom in Texas. 
Back in 2016, he put together a group of Christian and Jewish clergy to serve as spiritual support for people getting abortions, to pray with them and support them as they prepare for the procedure. Then, last May, Texas passed Senate Bill 8, or SB 8, a precedent-setting anti-abortion law that made the procedure illegal in Texas after just six weeks of gestation. This is often weeks before a person finds out they're pregnant. The law also gave private citizens the power to sue someone for helping people get an abortion with a $10,000 reward. It's the first time an abortion ban has included a bounty hunter clause. So despite the legal risks, Reverend Cantor felt called after SB8 to lead the multi-faith chaplaincy group on a different mission, not supporting patients at the clinic in Dallas, but helping them get to a sister clinic in New Mexico. On this morning, Reverend Cantor and his team are focused on easing the women's nerves as they get ready for the journey across state lines. It is a long day, and uh, Erica, come on up here. Erica's going to spend 14 hours with you guys and be your companion, be your spiritual partner in this whole thing. Reverend Erica Forbes, a tall black woman with a radiant smile, comes to the front of the room. She's an interfaith minister. Hey, ladies. So my name is Reverend Erica Forbes, and I'm going to give you a really quick rundown on, on why I'm here and how I got in front of you. And then she says something I've never heard a minister say before. I've had two abortions in my life. I'm 51. And my first abortion when I was 14. And then I had another abortion when I was 17. Reverend Forbes is one of over 100 clergy members from across the state of Texas that have signed up to serve as chaplains for these trips. I cannot think of anything else I would rather be doing this morning. And that even includes sleeping. (laughs) This is that important. Before she and the group board the van for the airport, Reverend Cantor checks in with them one last time. Do you guys have anything to say or any questions for any of us? Yeah. I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. It means a lot. Today, I'm taking you on a journey across state lines to meet an underground network of religious people risking everything to support reproductive freedom. We'll start right here in Texas, which has one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country, and end in New Mexico, which has become a safe haven for people in the South seeking abortions. We'll meet the pioneers who stood in solidarity with abortion seekers before Roe, and who are pressing forward now after the end of Roe. From Higher Ground and Futuro Studios, I'm your host, Heather McGee. And this is The Some of Us, a podcast documenting my journey around the United States in search of hope and solidarity. How did we get here to the point that clergy members meet women at a church parking lot at four in the morning to shuttle them across state lines for health care? Well, to really understand the role that organized religion has played in reproductive rights, we have to start from the beginning. Before Roe v. Wade in 1966, 
a small group of Christian ministers and Jewish rabbis set out to help people find safe abortions. At the time, the problem of dangerous back-alley abortions was rampant. The clergy members got organized to offer counseling and referrals to doctors that they would enlist to perform the procedure. Here's Reverend Erica Forbes again. They called themselves clergy consultation services. They would meet in back rooms and plan to drive women across state lines. An enormous undertaking from one car to the next for a short distance to get them there without cell phones. Eventually, the Clergy Consultation Services on Abortion, or CCS as they became known, grew to more than a thousand religious leaders across the country. Their network included a small group of trusted doctors. Dr. Curtis Boyd was one of them. Can I get your name, sir? I haven't gotten your name. Oh, Curtis Boyd. <laughs> doctor? Yes, doctor of medicine. Dr. Boyd would go on to open up clinics, including one in Dallas, and the one in New Mexico, where the women were headed that morning. But back in the late 1960s, he was just a self-described country boy from East Texas. This is a period when chaplains were very politically active. This is in the 60s. Many chaplains have sort of joined the progressive movement. He was a man of faith. He became an ordained Baptist minister by the age of 17. And then he went on to medical school and became a primary care physician. While in medical school, he got inspired by the civil rights movement and the summer of love. His Baptist upbringing had instilled in him the importance of service and compassion. And for him, the civil rights movement and the women's movement deeply aligned with those Christian beliefs. He was an idealist. I was young. I was enthusiastic. There was all this excitement that we were going to change the world and make it a better place and a fairer and more just world. And we were going to win at everything, all of this. Dr. Boyd hadn't planned on becoming an abortion provider, but the clergy consultation services reached out to him and asked if he would be their trusted doctor in Texas. I said, oh, that's a big ask. And I said, I'll need to think about it. And in the end, I thought about it, and I called him and said, yes, I'll do it. So that was it. I, that was the, our career started, and there was no turning back. Thousands of people all across the country were referred to Dr. Boyd through this national network of clergy. But he was taking a huge risk. Before Roe, abortion was completely illegal in Texas, except to save the life of a pregnant person. Dr. Boyd could have faced two to five years in prison. Still... I wanted to provide this care and service and intended to keep doing it, but I didn't want to go to prison then either. In 1989, the police chief of Athens, Texas, where Dr. Boyd ran his practice for many years, spoke to an NBC correspondent about targeting Boyd's abortion work. You would have liked a chance to prosecute him? Yes, sir. I'm definitely against it, and... Uh... It uh, was against the law. But he got away with it. He got away with it. Boyd knew that he was in the crosshairs of Athens police and that he could be arrested at any moment. I lived in a great deal of fear and apprehension about that, but did not let it stop me from doing the work at hand that I needed to do. He was constantly in danger, not just because he was a target of law enforcement, 
He was also threatened and blackmailed by opponents of abortion. It got so bad that he was placed on an FBI protection list after the agency considered him a major target for assassination by anti-abortion extremists. Dr. Boyd told us a story about a particularly close brush with danger that told us so much about the stakes, and not just for him. One day, a man showed up to his clinic with a gun. And he pulled out this big pistol, biggest pistol I think I've ever seen, just pointing it right at me. He said, I'm here to rob you. It turns out this man and his wife had been at the clinic earlier that day. They hadn't had enough money for the procedure, but Dr. Boyd treated her anyway while their three small children waited in the lobby. I said, you must be in a hard place right now to be doing this. What's going on in your life? Then he told me, he said, I lost my job, don't have any money, I don't have food for my children. Well, I my basic feeling then was, yeah, did you need to be robbing me somewhat? What, I mean, what, my God, you got three children out there starving, and I think you got no place to sleep, no food to eat. And then he said, but I, I can't rob you, I can't do this. The man put away his gun and didn't rob Dr. Boyd. But the story haunts him. It haunts me because it shows what parents are willing to do to take care of their children, the ones they already have. I had some $100 bills in my pocket. I pulled out two or $300 bills to give to him. He wouldn't take them, said, no, I'm not going to take your money. And I just showed it into his pocket and a hug, and he embraces me back, and I said, go in peace, brother. And that was the end of our relationship. Never saw him again. The constant harassment and threat of imprisonment eventually forced Dr. Boyd to leave the state of Texas. I thought, this can't continue. So that's when I moved to New Mexico 70, the fall of 1970. Dr. Boyd moved to Albuquerque, hoping it would lessen the risk for him and his patients. Abortion was still illegal in New Mexico, but the law had an exception for the physical or mental health of the patient. And because that was left up to the doctor's discretion— the law there was more lenient than in many other states. So clergy members created a 650-mile underground railroad of sorts from Dallas to Albuquerque in the years before Roe. The group would put about a dozen women on flights out of Texas every day, and Dr. Boyd's clinic in New Mexico would treat them. We would do their abortions, and then someone would drive them back to the airport, and they would fly back. And we still took appointments only from the clergy. All around the country, people were confiding in the one person they trusted the most, their minister, their priest, their rabbi. And if they were lucky, their clergy members knew to contact someone like Dr. Boyd. The workload was tremendous, and I still couldn't meet the need. They all knew that this clandestine healthcare system wasn't enough. The country needed federal protection for abortion. So while these underground trips across state lines were happening, something big was brewing in the basement of that same Dallas church from the beginning of our episode. The first Unitarian church in Dallas, the place I visited at the beginning of the episode, had a women's study group in the early 70s that decided to discuss the issue of abortion. 
At first, these Texas women were split on the issue. But the more they studied it, the more they realized abortion was health care, and women were dying to get it. Here's Reverend Cantor, the senior minister at the church. The fact that the Roe v. Wade case started because women in my church were studying the issue of abortion and trying to figure it out. They open-minded, wanted to figure out what was real about having the right or not right to choose. One day, the group brought somebody into the church to share her story. The woman who would be known as Jane Roe. And they met real-life people like Roe and took that case, went and found Sarah Weddington and wrote the first amicus brief to the 5th District and sent that case on its way. It was at this church that young attorneys Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey planned with the plaintiff, Jane Roe, to file a lawsuit against Henry Wade, the Dallas District Attorney who enforced Texas's anti-abortion law. The year was 1970. When we visited, Reverend Cantor walked us over to the church archives and read from the legal documents. Faith in the, moral potential of the brief, they said, was filed in accordance with their religious beliefs. In filing this brief, we are acting in complete accord with the stated purpose of the Women's Alliance of the First Unitarian Church of Dallas, as well as Unitarian Universalist Women's Federation, to join wholeheartedly, quote, with men and women everywhere in striving for universal human dignity, freedom, and peace. About three years later, on January 22, 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a decision, 7-2, to two, in favor of Jane Roe. Here's Dr. Boyd again. We were standing there listening to the news, and it broke out. We just embraced each other, and everybody started crying. And through my tears, I was thinking, oh, it's over. At last, it's over. Remember, at the time, Dr. Boyd was in Albuquerque, receiving women who were crossing state lines for abortions. The day after the Roe v. Wade decision, the clergy consultation services asked Dr. Boyd to return to Texas. Here he was, someone who'd fled Texas out of fear of imprisonment, back in his home state, finally able to practice medicine without the threat of prosecution. He was able to provide abortions in Dallas because the clergy consultation services took out a loan for the clinic. They also hired a young psychologist, a woman named Glenna Halverson, to be an abortion counselor. Glenna had heard of Dr. Boyd's work through her years as a counselor at a halfway house, where she would often refer women to get abortions in the years before Roe. But she was not very impressed the first time she met him. There was this strangely dressed hippie hanging out at the back door. And the patients turned to me and said, who is that? What is he doing here? And I said, I have no idea but I'll be sure that he's gone. And Curtis said, perhaps you don't know who I am. And I said, I frankly don't care who you are. You are frightening patients. You're not appropriately dressed for the surgery area. Step outside. And he did. I thought, hmm, that seemed like a good request. I think I'll do it. Dr. Boyd and Glenna were married soon after. They bonded over the work, made possible by a hard-won victory, and rooted in faith. 
And one of the lost parts of the history of legal abortion in the United States is that the two organized groups who fought for legal abortion were the feminists and the clergy consultation. So that abortion rights came very much out of compassionate religion. In fact, the reaction to Roe v. Wade in the Christian community wasn't what you might think. Yes, there was a large group of Christians that opposed abortions. Catholics were overwhelmingly against it. But many other faith groups felt differently. Baptists celebrated the decision because it upheld the division between church and state. United Methodists believed in the sanctity of unborn life, but were, quote, equally bound to respect the sacredness of the life and well-being of the mother. Evangelical Christians were largely indifferent on the subject. And according to a 1972 Gallup poll, registered Republicans were about 10 percentage points more pro-choice than Democrats. So what happened? Here's Reverend Erica Forbes again. We know and we have documentation that there was a 50-year strategy that the conservatives put together to make abortion the wedge issue. Prior to that, it was not. Abortion was not a prominent issue in politics or one that conservatives cared much about until one man decided to make it the issue. He became a key figure behind the formation of what we know today as the religious right. His name was Paul Weyrich. And before Roe, Weyrich had been working to keep schools racially segregated. After the Supreme Court case Brown versus Board of Education had struck down segregation in schools, white Southerners had flocked to Christian schools, which were private and could stay segregated. But in 1971, the federal government said that religious schools couldn't discriminate and still qualify for tax-exempt status. The court said separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. After his segregation efforts were unsuccessful, Weyrich looked for another issue to galvanize the conservative base. After Roe passed, he saw an opportunity to use abortion rather than segregation as the hot-button cultural issue to unite white Christians for the Republican Party. I had long advocated the outreach to the evangelical community. Paul Weyrich came from a mixed Catholic and Protestant family. He saw the similarities between these two Christian groups and wanted to unite them in support of Republican causes. It made no sense to me that people who had the same values were voting in opposite directions. And I began to think of what could you do? He teamed up with the high-profile televangelist, Jerry Falwell Sr., and they made a plan. That is when we began talking to various persons about forming some kind of entity. Falwell stopped me and he said, uh, you started out by saying, out there, there is something. What did you call that? And finally, I said, oh, I said there was a moral majority. And he said, that's it. He turned to his guy and he said, that's, that's what I'm going to call the organization, moral majority. The moral majority created a radical break with evangelical tradition to engage in politics from the pulpit. Falwell gave his first speech on abortion in 1978 
a full five years after Roe v. Wade, saying, Abortion is not a Roman Catholic issue. It is a moral issue. It is a human rights issue, an issue that concerns the human rights of unborn babies who, by the hundreds of thousands, are being murdered. Since then, the right wing has used religion to gain support for a cultural politics of grievance against social progress. And on June 24th, 2022, a conservative Supreme Court voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. Here's Reverend Forbes again. They played the long game, and quite frankly, they won. Now, because of the success of the religious right, Dr. Boyd and his wife, Glenna, find that history is repeating itself. Dr. Boyd is back to doing what he did in the 1970s. 50 years later, I'm doing the same thing. Right now, we're flying patients from Dallas to Albuquerque to do their abortions. Heartsick is how I feel. And simultaneously glad that we can do it. I think the positive part of it is that the religious community is again involved. They do trips with up to 20 people every two weeks now. With the help of clergy, pregnant patients who call the Dallas Clinic can make the journey from the Unitarian Church to the Boyd Sister Clinic in Albuquerque. Journeys like the one we witnessed beginning that early morning in the Dallas Church parking lot. Yes, yes, nice to meet you. I visited the Boyd's Dallas Clinic in May of 2022. Southwest Women's Options, it's now called, is in a nondescript office park. It would look like any other medical clinic except for the protester stationed outside. When you walk in, the clinic is warm and inviting. I got to sit down with a woman named Becca. She's an abortion doula someone trained to offer physical and emotional support to people before and after an abortion. She told me she used to work in advertising, but felt called to the reproductive justice movement in Texas. I came in because it was bad, right? Like I joined it because it was going south fast and I saw that. And I joined this fight because of that, because there was so much work to be done in Texas. We were just trying to hold on to the access that we had. She explained to me how the process of getting people from Texas to New Mexico works. So once they've decided that, okay, maybe I'll do this trip, they sit down with us, they get the full explanation of like what that would look like, we'll care for you the whole time. Because the travelers from the church to the clinic are low income, it takes donations from religious nonprofits and abortion funds all over the country to make these trips happen. The funds cover flights, hotels, meals, and clinic fees. In a post-Roe reality, these arduous, out-of-state journeys are going to become more common as states pass more abortion bans. States are passing these bans even though over 60% of Americans support safe and legal abortions. And one in four women in the U.S. has had an abortion. Reverend Forbes told me that there was a woman on the trip that morning who was already a parent. And throughout the trip, she lovingly shared photos of her kids. And she was proud and happy to have all of those children. And she was just as happy to end with an abortion 
because she knew that she was complete. And she wasn't alone. Many of those on the trip that day already had children. In fact, in the U.S., the majority of people seeking abortions are already parents. This made me think about how, for many parents, this decision is about love for their families, love for the children they already have, and respect for what it takes to be a parent. Because parents are so often left on their own in a society that still lacks universal health care, child care, paid family leave. That's also why clergy feel called to help parents on these trips. Some of the women are scared they'll be threatened by anti-abortion protesters. Like these people, protesting outside of the clinic that the travelers went to in Albuquerque. They're, they're for the devil. I mean... It's, it, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible everywhere. Thou shalt not kill. And because religion has been so associated with anti-abortion beliefs, many are leery of the church. So one of the things I make very clear to them is they hear there's going to be some religious people. We're meeting at a church parking lot. Like, what's going on? And nothing about the trip is to talk to you about your beliefs or your choice to have an abortion or to proselytize to you because they hear us describe this and it sounds an awful lot like the crisis pregnancy centers that they might have been to. And so I want to make it very clear that that is not who this is. One of the crisis pregnancy centers Becca is referring to is right here in the same office park as Dr. Boyd's clinic. Crisis pregnancy centers look like abortion clinics, but they're not. They offer free pregnancy tests and sonograms, but they try to deter people from having abortions. They've been known to use religious language and graphic images to do so. Reverend Cantor told us he's witnessed people going into the crisis pregnancy center a couple doors down and come out in tears. Becca has seen how difficult this process can be for pregnant patients That's why, as an abortion doula, she provides physical, emotional, and mental support during their care. She even offers to be in the procedure room if a patient wants her there. And she says religious faith is a constant theme in her work. We'll talk about it all day long with people and what it means to them. I think there's no lack of mixing between religion and abortion. I think that they're very, very tied together. And I see people all day long choose abortion because of their faith, not in spite of it or anything. What does that look like? Can you, like, walk me through a conversation like that? Or or can you recall a story of somebody who brought faith into the room at that moment? I mean, with what's hanging right now and the risk of what's happening right now, in the last couple weeks, what has moved me is patients saying that they felt like God provided them this space and that that was something that felt like we had been... here for them, and that was evidence of God. I want to tell you about the culture of love. It's a set of practices the Boyds instilled in their clinics. It's about treating the whole patient and each other with compassion especially because abortions are often private matters and some people 
may be navigating the process entirely on their own. Here's Dr. Boyd describing it. Yeah, there's this ritual. You have to be a beginning, and then there's the middle. And it has to be an end. There has to be a closure. So you just can't get up off the surgery stool and walk out of the room. Can't do that. Not allowed in our facilities. You have to go to the head of the table and speak to the patient and have closure. And then you can say goodbye to her. See, that's what gives her her final sense that she really was seen and heard and cared about. So that's the essence of our teaching. Their patients often have very little money, and yet clinics like the Boyd's cannot receive government funding, while the Crisis Pregnancy Center a few doors down does. Just this year, Texas earmarked $100 million for the state's Alternative to Abortion program that funds crisis pregnancy centers. But because of the Hyde Amendment, passed by Congress in 1976, federal funds can't cover abortion for people on Medicaid and Medicare. So the people who, by definition, need assistance the most have the fewest options. And as an abortion doula, Becca says she sees evidence every day of how race and class impact access to reproductive health care. Medicaid will not cover anything. They wouldn't even cover a birth control prescription that a patient walks out of our building with because our doctors are abortion doctors. That's why, Becca says, you can't talk about the real impact of abortion restrictions without talking about systemic racism. We serve a really high population of Black women and immigrants, and these people come in with a lot more barriers. I don't think you can talk about abortion bans without talking about race because of how uniquely they impact different communities based on their race, and that there are certain groups that will always be able to access abortion. But as is so often the case with systemic racism, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Someone experiencing the loss of a pregnancy, of a wanted pregnancy, can also end up in the crosshairs of abortion restrictions. Becca has seen people come to her clinic for the last heartbreaking part of the treatment for a miscarriage. But under abortion bans, doctors' hands are tied. So these are often the very privileged people that realize, like, this is, they have othered abortion care so much that we are still being impacted as privileged people. Do you think that if the limitations on abortion that have been in place in many states in the South, since Roe, affected primarily white women, that we would be here today? No. I think if white women had felt the threat through the years Roe was there, we wouldn't be here. Without universal protection of the right to choose guaranteed by federal law, it's been primarily lower-income people of color who have faced state barriers to abortion, even under Roe. The thing is, allowing some people to suffer has weakened reproductive freedom for everyone. But there are people fighting harder than ever before for abortion rights, like Becca, who's now moving to Albuquerque to continue her ministry of faith. And so you're uprooting your whole life just to continue this work? Yeah, thought about it for a really long time. Albuquerque is the future. All around this country, it's going to be getting women 
from anti-abortion states to pro-abortion states where they can get the service they need. New Mexico is now more important than ever to reproductive freedom in this country, particularly in the South. It's a blueprint for what movements can win at a state level against anti-abortion attacks nationwide. But while New Mexico is a safe haven today, that wasn't always the case. So we went to New Mexico to meet the people behind this unlikely win. One of them is a former patient of Dr. Boyd's Albuquerque Clinic. My name is Erica Davis Crump. Erica Davis Crump played a key role in winning New Mexico's new law. She was raised a devout Southern Baptist. She also got her bachelor's in Christian ministry from a Baptist college. I love the fact that I grew up in the culture of the Black church out here. I love that. It's so deep, it's rich, and it's beautiful. But what it was doing to my soul was, ooh, it wasn't worth it. At a young age, Erica was told by doctors that she'd never be able to have children. Imagine her surprise when, at 19, she found out she was pregnant. Teen parent raised in the church. Uh, I was 19 when I had her. Um, I chose to be a parent. But that pregnancy was difficult. It almost killed her. She was 90-plus days early, weighed in grams, and her just being in my body almost took me out. She later chose to have another child, and that pregnancy, too, proved to be life-threatening. I thought I was going to die three weeks into my son being born because my whole entire scar reopened. Black women have a maternal mortality rate almost three times higher than white women in this country, for a lot of reasons. Well-documented bias on the part of healthcare providers, underlying chronic conditions often caused by structural racism, and unequal access to quality healthcare. Experiencing this lack of care for her reproductive health inspired Erica to join the reproductive justice movement. Abortion being my way of life now <laughs> is uh, upsetting to some of my family members. She became an advocate for reproductive justice in New Mexico, where she lives. In 2018, she joined a coalition called Respect New Mexico Women and Families. The group was working to overturn a 1969 abortion ban that New Mexico still had on its books, the ban could come into effect if Roe was ever overturned. By 2020, Erica was nominated to co-chair the coalition alongside Nicole Martin, an Indigenous person and co-founder of Indigenous Women Rising. The first time that this organization had ever been led by Black and Indigenous birthing bodies, which was really dope. New Mexico has one of the largest Indigenous populations in the U.S., it's estimated that over a quarter of all Native women were forcibly sterilized by Indian health services in a practice that continued until the 1970s. And they're not alone. Black women were also forcibly sterilized in the South, where the practice was so common they were called Mississippi appendectomies. More than 60,000 women, many Black and brown, were sterilized in the U.S. in the last century because of eugenics, a widespread belief that people of color had dangerous genetic traits that could be bred out of society. So there's a long racist tradition of men using the power of the state to control women's bodies in this country. From slavery to today, 
whether it's taking away their ability to bear children or forcing them to bear children against their will. When Erica first joined the coalition, she says it was mostly white-led, even though it's people of color who are disproportionately impacted by the lack of access to abortion. She says she and the other organizers of color had to do a lot of educating around the different obstacles they face that wealthier white women don't, like racism. It has been hard. It has not been kumbaya. It has not been easy. We have beef. It's like any other family. See, throughout history, it has always taken people of all backgrounds standing up together to fight back. And that's exactly what the New Mexico Multiracial Coalition did. They worked across race and religious beliefs and gender identities, and they won. On February 26, 2021, the governor signed their bill into law, the Respect New Mexico Women and Families Act. We decided it was now, and that collective decision and the community and coalition we built around it made that happen. And for nothing else, I'm really proud of that. So yay, New Mexico. I love you. Erica has a message for the people who are able to find care in New Mexico because of her work, like the people I met at the Dallas church that morning. If this abortion is a blessing to you, then baby, God bless you. I have to admit, after the fall of Roe v. Wade, knowing how many women and families would suffer, it was hard not to despair. But I see reason for hope across this country. Earlier this summer, there was a major win at the ballot for abortion rights in Kansas. Voters in this red state overwhelmingly rejected a proposed constitutional amendment that would have paved the way for an abortion ban. This referendum was the first of its kind since the Supreme Court decision. The victory came in part because of the work of a diverse coalition that included religious leaders. As Christians, we are instructed to love one another. We do so when we respect and trust women as God does. The people I met on this journey gave me faith. People like the Boyds. I don't keep doing this because necessarily now because I want to. I just feel compelled to do it. I mean, I'm so committed. I don't think I could stand to die at this point, just standing by. If I did that now and nothing else, I, I couldn't live with myself. I just could die. And the people of faith, like Reverend Forbes, who can speak directly to anti-abortion clergy. I see you. I understand that your religious faith drives you to believe and to hold a position that abortion is wrong. And I support you in that belief. And I will walk with you and I will defend to the death your right to believe it. But I will never allow you to put your belief and your faith on me or anyone else. Because you don't have that right. She uses her religion as a shield to protect the vulnerable at a time when others use religion like a sword to divide us. Here's what she told us after the Supreme Court decision. 
not only will we get back up, but we are going to get back up stronger and with more resilience. And it may not look like that today. And it may not feel like that today. It may feel and look like complete chaos and devastation. And that is acceptable. But that's not the reality. The reality is that we are just beginning to fight. And she's not letting this ruling stop her from doing the work she feels called to do. We will keep going for as long as we have to and as long as we need to. The underground network that grew up before the days of Roe is stronger now. The coalitions for reproductive choice have evolved too. They're increasingly being led by people of color who understand that systems that were put in place to target those who have the least ultimately become dysfunctional for all. For me personally, so much shifted after I learned that religious clergy had been on the side of reproductive freedom from the very beginning. It fortified my conviction, made me seek new allies, gave me a new moral clarity as I fight for reproductive freedom today. I'm even more pro-choice now. This is the hardest job in the world and the idea of having to do it against your will is, it's unconscionable. Next time on The Some of Us, we're going to the beach. To California's Manhattan Beach, where the oceanfront community is almost entirely white. But it wasn't always that way. In the 1920s, the city evicted the Bruces, a Black family who were among the first landowners on the beach. These folks were the hosts of Black Los Angeles that would be coming down here to enjoy the beach. Nearly 100 years later, an unlikely group of people came together to reclaim the land and the right to enjoy the water. This is like the happiest I've been in a really long time. This is really great. <laughs> this is so great. <laughs> but what we're going to do is we're going to take this and build ourselves up to a place of joyful, defiant, celebration, and in that celebration is power, and in that power, there's equity. The first case of land reparations for a Black family in this country on our next episode. From Higher Ground, this is The Some of Us, created and hosted by me, Heather McGee, and produced by Futuro Studios. Our producers are Kasim Shepard, Ryan Kailoth, Emil Sequiros, Joaquin Cutler, and Juan Diego Ramirez, with help from Liliana Ruiz, Sophia Lowe, Susanna Kemp, and Alyssa Vladimir. Our senior producers are Nicole Rothwell, Jeannie Montalvo, and Fernanda Echavari. We're edited by Sandy Ratley and Maria Garcia. Additional editing for this episode by Fernanda Echavari. Executive produced for Futuro by Marlon Bishop. Mixing by Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. With help from Gabriela Baez. Recorded at the Bridge Studio in Brooklyn, New York by Jurash Jovanovich and Greg Talk. Research by Lynn Cantor and Carolyn Lipka. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Mukta Mohan, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, and Janae Marable. Jenna Levin is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, 
Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Our original music and theme song is by The Sacred Souls. Join us for the next episode of The Sum of Us, a podcast in search of hope and solidarity. Futuro.